Welcome to Charting the Course, a podcast from Full Sail Capital. We're a registered investment advisory firm committed to helping clients grow and manage generational wealth. We do this by focusing on integrity, competency, and transparency each and every day. No matter where you find yourself on the investing journey, our hope is that these conversations, stories, and interviews can empower and equip all investors with fresh insight and perspective on the capital markets. Thank you so much for joining us, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hey, it is so good to be back with you today. Happy New Year. I hope everyone's having a fantastic start to 2024. I can't believe we're here, but we are, so let's make it a great year. Uh, back in May of 2023, we were honored to be joined by Morgan Housel, one, uh, a partner at the Collaborative Fund and author of the book Psychology of Money, as well as now his new book, Same as Ever. So we wanted to re-highlight that episode there was just so much great content in there. Zach Reynolds, our chief investment officer, joined me for that conversation. Morgan just continues to be one of the top thought leaders in finance in the investment world. He continues to pop up on podcasts and interviews here and there. So we were just thrilled that he took the time out of his day when he was in Oklahoma City to join us. So we have updated the show notes, though, to both include his Psychology of Money book, as well as his new book that I mentioned, Same as Ever. Of course, continued to link to his blog and his podcast. So go check those out if you didn't. Our next episode will be our first squared away of 2024. So we'll sit down, take a look back on the whole year of 2023, get the investment team's thoughts as we review and then look ahead to 2024, look at a few things that are on the horizon, uh, maybe some considerations that they're taking into account. But as always, I really look forward to those conversations. But uh, we needed to let the data come in and, and then make sure we had some time to digest it all. So as always, thanks for listening. Have a great rest of the week. Here's my conversation with Zach Reynolds and Morgan Housel. Well, Morgan and Zach, it's a pleasure to sit down with, with you both today. Morgan, we appreciate you joining the podcast and welcome to Oklahoma City. Thanks for having me. My yeah. first time here. That's awesome. Well, we're, we're excited that we can be your uh, welcoming party. Thank you. We, we kind of teed everything up in the intro, gave everybody an idea of why you're here and what you're doing and your background. But if you don't mind... Let's go all the way back and kind of tell us how you got into the space you're in, and then we'll kind of go from there. Well, how I got into the space I'm in is an interesting story because I think this is true for a lot of people, actually. None of it was planned. It was not part of any big grand vision. It was not what I planned to do during college. It was kind of a pure accident. All throughout college, I wanted to be an investment banker. Okay. If you go back to the mid-2000s, like every slightly ambitious male in 2004, wanted to be an investment banker. It's different now, but back then, that was the cool thing. Like before tech, that was the big thing to do. Right. So that was my plan. That was plan A, B, and C. And I got an investment banking internship in my junior year of college. And day one, not even day one, not even hour one, minute one of it, I was just like, nope, this is not going to work for me. <laughs> and the culture today of investment banking, I think, is different. Back then, it was like Navy SEAL boot camp. What's the Navy SEAL like training? It's called BUDS, I think, right. the Navy SEAL training. Yeah. It was like the Brooks Brothers version of the Navy SEAL training. And it was, I'm all for working hard and working long hours, but I will do that to be productive. This was, let me just torture you because I had to be tortured myself. That's, right. that's kind of what the relationship was between boss and, and, and intern. So I quickly realized like, this is not for me. I actually loved the work, the finance, the deal making, even like the spreadsheets, the modeling. I love that. But culture wise, I was just like, I can't get out of here fast enough. But so that was... I, so I did quit after about a month. And, but that was also kind of a, a reckoning of like, what do I do now for my entire, you know, the previous, I don't know, five years before that, everything was investment banking. That's all I ever considered. There was no plan B. So that was kind of a scary moment of like, I don't know what I'm going to do now. And then I got a, uh, an internship 
at a private equity firm okay. the next summer. That was perfect. I loved private equity because the culture was way better. It was a good mix between deal making and business right. rather than just a transaction. It's like, hey, now we have to not only buy the business, but now we have to go run it. And it was like, oh, I loved it. Such a cool place I was working at. This was summer 2007. Everything <laughs> started melting down. If you're in a private equity firm that borrows a lot of money to get the deals done, everything literally like... I, I remember the day, it was August in 2007, oh. when it was like everything, I'm making the day up, but it was like everything was fine on Tuesday and on Wednesday, everyone was like, we're, we're done, it's toast. Yeah. <laughs> Cause the banks just stopped lending overnight. So I, my, my plan was to stay at that firm, but then later in the summer they said, hey, there's not gonna be a position for you right. or anybody. They were just struggling to stay alive back then. So then it was like, okay, now I have a double reckoning. I, I don't wanna be an investment banker. Private equity didn't work out because of the economy. What do I do now? And I had a friend at the time who was a writer at The Motley Fool. And I never in a million years wanted to be a writer. I didn't enjoy writing. I never considered it, but I needed a job. I just needed to pay my rent yeah. is what it was. And he said, hey, they're hiring writers. And I thought, well, A, they're not going to hire me because I don't know what I'm doing as a writer. And B, but if they do, I'll do it for six months. I'll just for the paycheck yeah, before I can find another private equity fill job. It in. And the crazy thing is, and this gets back to there's no part of the plan. I ended up just falling in love with it of the process really? of writing. Okay. And I would, I would actually say like the first six months felt like work. It felt like I was just doing labor for a paycheck. But after a while, I was like, oh, this is actually really fun. And I think too early on, I had a low, I'm kind of ashamed to say this, but it's true. I had a low view of writers mm. and journalists relative to investment bankers. Fair. I don't right. anymore. But at the time it was like, I'm a journalist. Like what? That's, yeah. that's, not, that's not. But over time I was like, it's actually a really cool position to be an outsider looking in. Because everybody in the trenches, so to speak, yeah. the fund managers, the financial advisors, everybody who is in the trenches have their own little biases and their own little incentives that they're trying to make work. And whereas I felt like as an outsider, there were a lot of things that I could not know. I couldn't know the emotions of a financial advisor or yeah. a fund manager, but I felt like there was a little bit of a viewpoint that I could have that an insider could not. And also since I was not a journalist, so to speak, I wasn't writing for, you know, the Associated Press. It was a Molly Fool, it was kind of, it was commentary. Right. So I could really say what I wanted to, whatever I was feeling. And I just love that process. Yeah. So never part of the plan, but I, I, I thought I'd stay for three or six months. I stayed at the Molly Fool for nine years. And that was, where, really I, that well. was where I learned how to become a writer. Uh, before I joined the Collaborative Fund in 2016. Take us back when you were writing for The Motley Fool. I know, I think I have a good idea of your investment philosophy now. I suspect that's evolved over time. Were you writing about individual stocks? What was that experience like after coming out of private equity versus where you are today and how you invest your money today? So I think also during my private equity days, I think I also had an itch to become a stock picker, a value investing Warren Buffett style stock picker where I'm going to do a deep analysis and have a concentrated portfolio. That was kind of in my blood. And for my own money, what little I had back then, that's what I was doing. And so when I joined the Motley Fool, you're right, I was writing about individual stocks. And it was, this is a cheap stock that I like, and here's my little thousand word analysis on it. And the financial crisis, 2008, really woke me up and a lot of people up to the picture that macro plays in the investing world. And I think it was easy in 2005 to say, macro doesn't matter, I'm a stock picker. I don't care what the economy's doing, I'm looking at businesses. But after 2008, it's like, no, this affects everybody in everything. And it affects people socially. This is not just a financial thing, but when 10 million people lose their homes or whatever it was, this is like a big, this affects a lot of areas of life. So the idea of macro became really interesting to me. And I started writing about macro and then from, Writing about macro evolved into writing about behavior because oh, okay. stock picking is, let's say, the 5,000 foot level. Yep. Macro was the 15,000 foot level. 
And behavior was like the 30,000 foot level. Yeah. And I just liked, I, I fell in love with it. I just found it so much more interesting too. I think a lot of the reason I liked the behavioral element of it was that you could learn things about why investors were doing what they were doing. But those lessons also taught you about all these other things in life. You were just kind of trying to figure out how people's heads work. And I feel like in a really weird, this is kind of a, a cringe cliche thing to say, but I was like, in the process of learning about investing and finance and the economy, you could also learn valuable lessons about like relationships and friendships and politics. And you were just trying to study how people think and make decisions and what makes people tick. And so that I just, I just really fell in love with. And I guess that's what I've been doing ever since. That's interesting because in, I think your most recent podcast, you talk about reading outside your field. Yep. And so you can learn so much about investing from reading outside investing. So investing though, taught you some things about things outside of investing. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's all connected. And if you're just trying to study the topic of how do people make decisions? Well, that's a really broad field that encompasses everything. But if you can learn the basics of how people make decisions around risk and greed and fear and uncertainty, you become a better investor, but you also just have a better understanding of how the rest of the world works. It's, so that's, that's always what's been interesting to me. So, so at what point did you say, okay, I've learned a lot. I now am focusing at this 30,000 foot level. I want to write a book that ultimately became The Psychology of Money. Well, in 2018, I wrote a blog post called The Psychology of Money. It was very long. It was 10,000 words long, which an average book is 50,000 words. So I wrote a blog post that was a fifth of a book, very like obnoxiously long. And it was by far, by an order of magnitude, the best received piece I had ever written sure. and got the most views and the best feedback. So that was like, okay, I have an idea like this, this worked. If I can explain. And what the blog post was, was here are 20 things I've learned about finance. And let me explain them in a way that's kind of like a storytelling through the lens of some other field. So it's like, okay, that kind of worked. So let's expand on that. I already had 10,000 words from that. If I can just expand on these points, boom, there's the book. And it actually turned into the book that ended up getting published. Didn't have that much overlap with the blog post. Mm -hmm. I kind of wiped the slate clean and started over and just tried to make the, the chapters that ended up in the book a little bit longer and more storytelling based. But that was where it, it came from. And I really didn't have any expectations for that blog post. But when it was received as it was, it was like, okay, that's that was kind of the test to tee up this book. What was kind of the passion behind that blog post, which turned into the book? And then had you started to kind of develop your core investment philosophy? And what was that? And then did that play into you wanting to write this book? Like, hey, I've kind of figured out how I think about investments and finance. And then is that what kind of played into the blog post in the book? Well, I'll tell you kind of the genesis of the blog post. I've, I've, I've said this a couple of times. I don't, I'm not ashamed of it. Back in the 1990s, Charlie Munger gave a speech called The Psychology of Human Misjudgment. And I love that title, The Psychology of. And I feel like you could do that for any topic. Oh, like sure. Somebody could write a book called The Psychology of Sports, The Psychology right. of Politics, The Psychology of Medicine where you're not saying, here's what you should do. You're just saying, here's what happens in people's heads when they try to do it. Yeah. I would love to read the psychology of medicine written by a doctor who's like, here's how patients think about mm. the, the decisions that they make, the decisions in the hospital, decisions for their diets. I would love to read something like that. So after Charlie Munger wrote that speech, I just liked that style, the psychology of, and I was like, oh, let's do the psychology. At first I was going to call it the psychology of investing. And I think the, actually the first draft of the blog post was called the psychology of investing. Okay. But as I wrote the piece, it was like, oh, it's actually broader. And I don't want to pigeonhole myself into just investing. This is a lot of just money stuff in here. So I called it the psychology of money. And I think my writing style had always been short stories that have nothing to do with investing, but teach you something. But I really like doubled down on that in the blog post. Sure. 
And so that, that also just gave that, uh, that teed up the format for what the book became. Well, your book's been tremendously successful. Was that surprising to you? I mean, it sounds like you did write it broadly enough that it, it, it had broad appeal, but 53 languages, how many copies sold now? 3 million plus? But yeah. Yeah. I mean, congratulations on that, Thanks. but did yeah. that exceed your expectations? I mean, it, I can't exaggerate the extent to which it succeeded my <laughs> expectations. And I give you like the, the stat that I can prove that I'm not just trying to be humble when I say that is the first print run of the book was 5,000 copies. <laughs> and it was really like when we did the analysis with the publisher, it was like, that we would be stoked if it sold that much. And mm. what's true is that any book that gets published, if you can sell 5,000 copies, it doesn't matter who you are. Sure. People are so accustomed in content to get it for free. You get okay. it. Your podcasts are free. Your blogs are free. So then to ask someone to pay 20 bucks for something that they get all day for free is actually really difficult. Easy to get people to pay for other things in life, but what they are accustomed to is hard. Uh, and then the other aspect of this, I've, I've talked about this before, is that every single US publisher turned the book down. Every single one. I think we pitched it to 16 U.S. publishers, all 16 of them independently said, no way. Crazy. We even went back and said, we'll do it. I don't need any advance. Like, you don't have to wow. give me any money for this up front. <laughs> Just please Holy cow. help me print this. Wow. And every one of them said no. I, I, I don't look down upon them sure. at all because I think publishing is very much like venture capital mm. where it's like, it's obvious in hindsight, but the truth was a lot of people, a lot of really smart VCs passed on Uber. Right. And Microsoft back in the 70s or whatever yeah. it was. Like, it's just really difficult to tell what's going to work and what's not. So I don't, I don't think they'd made a bad decision even. It's just so, I, I didn't think it was going to do what it, what it did. And so. Was there a moment that it caught on or someone recommended it or that you really saw it, yeah. it take off? I think, so the book came out in September of 2020. I think it was February, 2020 that I announced it like on Twitter. And I said, here's a pre-order link. And I remember it did like 300 pre-orders. And I remember thinking, Oh, that sucks. Like <laughs> that sucks. Yeah. At, at the time, James Clear, a good friend of mine, he wrote the book uh, called Atomic Habits. Oh, yeah. Oh, and yeah. it's now sold 10 million copies. Right. It's literally the best selling book yep. in the world in the last couple it's of on years. My bedside table, it's right? just yeah. an absolute <laughs> knockout success. And at the time, he had just crossed a million copies sold. I knew that was amazing. But in my, in my head, I'm like, oh, James, a friend of mine, like he just published a book and it sold a million copies. So like, I, I, I don't think I benchmarked to that, <laughs> but like probably part of my brain. Sure. Did. So yeah. when I did 300 pre-orders, I was like, oh, jeez, I got, I got a long ways to make yeah. up here. And then about a week before the, my book was published, Jason Zweig of the Wall Street Journal wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal reviewing the book. Uh, okay. Yeah. And that... I think it went literally from 300 pre-orders to like 25,000 oh, wow. pre-orders at the time. And we had printed 5,000 copies, like I said, and did 25,000 pre-orders, which was a disaster because we didn't have the books for people to buy. <laughs> so it was the first month was like, a, yeah. it was like a yeah. catastrophe. So I think the, the Jason Zweig article was the first. I'm, I actually remember going for a walk around my block after the Jason Zweig article came out and thinking like, oh, this, this might be different than I thought. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Well, what, one of the topics in the book that I, love to hear you talk about and I think is so applicable as we work with wealthy people is, is the difference between rich and wealthy. And I wonder if maybe you'd talk about your thoughts and wh what you've learned over time about that difference. Yeah. And I'm making these definitions up myself so people can take these as seriously or as unseriously as they want. But my definition was rich means you have enough money to make your monthly payments on whatever lifestyle you're living. You can pay your mortgage, you can make your car lease payment, you can pay your credit card bills. You have the money to live the lifestyle that you want. That makes you rich. Wealthy, by my definition, was money that you have not spent. It's money that you are not spending on your car lease payments and your mortgage payments. It's accumulated wealth and savings that is unseen. Because I, I can see your car, I can see your clothes and your house, 
but I can't see your brokerage account. So I can see how rich you are, but I have no clue how wealthy or unwealthy you are. And a lot of this, I, I went to college in Los Angeles in the mid 2000s, which was peak subprime mortgage bubble. There was so much fake money sloshing around LA in an already fake city to have that much debt <laughs> sloshing around. LA in the mid 2000s was just a material, it was, it, was a, it was a crazy place to be. And I met so many people, not just one or two, but so many people who would be driving a Porsche or a Lambo or a Bentley. And then you get to know them and you're like, you're actually not that successful. <laughs> you're like a first year lawyer and you're spending half your money on, on, on a Porsche payment. Yeah. So that was like, okay, you're rich, but you are not wealthy. You are as far away from wealthy as you can be, so even if good. you're rich. Right. And so, and there were so many people that I met like that. And I just thought it was so astounding. And then everyone either knows or has heard stories about the guy who's driving a Subaru and he lives in a three bedroom house and he's worth tens of millions of dollars. And you know, that to me, that that's like, that's the same, that's the opposite end of the spectrum of the person spending half their money on a Porsche payment. So I, I don't know if I actually aspire to be that, like the absolute mm -hmm. frugal miser. I, the miser. I don't really aspire to that either, but I'm closer to aspiring to that. And I actually think most people, not everybody, but I think most people, even if they don't know it, want to be closer to that guy than the fake Porsche guy. Not, not, it's not black or white, but they lean towards wanting wealth that makes them independent and autonomous and just gives them the freedom to do whatever they want. That's the life they want to live versus the flashy peacock feathers that you can't actually make. That it's kind of a fake thing. You're like struggling to make the payments on your luxury car. So that was, that was when I started thinking about rich versus wealthy was living in LA in the mid 2000s and seeing what may have been like the starkest contrast in modern U.S. history was L.A. in the mid-2000s. <laughs> so funny. What do you think, Morgan, allows you to make these observations about things that, you know, when I, when I read that you've written that or hear on your podcast that they seem absolutely true, but there's a lot of people who can't kind of piece that together, but you've figured out some way when we gave your book out to our clients, they're like, man, that guy has some real wisdom. And I think you're around my, my age, late 30s, early 40s. What is it? Do you think you're just observational enough to pick up on these things and then using those stories to, to explain these concepts. My wife made a joke one time. It was a, a loving wife criticism, but I think she's totally right. And she and I've talked about like, I know you're joking, but I think this is actually true. She said, I'm not smart enough to be able to think of these in a technical way. I have to stay at the 30,000 foot level because if I try to go lower, it's over my head. That's really true. Like analytically math, like I never did that well. Science, like I never really did that well as wasn't that talented at it. So I think a lot of very smart people in finance that attracts a really a lot of smart people, they look at a topic like how to maximize your portfolio, how to maximize returns, how to think about what's the right level of debt. And they're so smart that they use their big brain to go down to not the 5,000 foot level, but they want to be at the ground level. How can I make this as technical as I possibly can? The spreadsheet down to the 10th decimal place. And I'm like, I can't do that. So I got to stay at the 30,000 foot level and be like, Rich versus wealthy. Like this, this is kindergarten stuff we're talking about. But I think that's honestly a lot of it. It's just, that's kind of how my brain works that's is the big point. stuff. And then the other thing that I always have to point out too is that this is all I do for a living is right. thinking about this stuff. And for a lot of financial advisors or portfolio managers, you have a day job of doing yeah. other stuff. Whereas for me, I can just spend the last 16 years walking around my neighborhood trying to think about these things and put it together. Yeah, well, I think we're chuckling over here because we know exactly what you're talking about when we see advisors or other people just try to get the exact right answer like it's a science. And I think what your work shows is 
there's a lot of art to this stuff too, which brings me to one of my uh, favorite concepts of yours, which is reasonable versus rational. And maybe, maybe walk us through how you think about that. I've heard you on other podcasts talk about things that maybe in your own personal financial situation you've done that are reasonable, but a spreadsheet would tell you might not be rational. Yeah, it's, I think this is a perfect segue because the really smart big brain finance people want to use a spreadsheet, want to use the formulas to make rational decisions. And who could argue with that to make a rational decision? And I just think people are not rational. Nobody is. Nobody on this planet is 100% rational. We are not just walking spreadsheets. And the way to frame this is like, nobody makes a financial decision in Excel on a spreadsheet. They make it at the dinner table with their family, with their spouse, where they're like, this is what we got. These are our goals. How are we going to get there? It's not a spreadsheet decision. And particularly at the dinner table, all the messy household relationships of one spouse wants this, the other spouse wants that. We got kids and we want to give them the best life. All these men and our family, our parents want us to do X, Y, and Z. And it's not something that you can reduce to a statistic or a formula. It's a messy thing. So because of that, I, I think a lot of people get into problems when they try to be mm-hmm. too rational yeah. and you just shouldn't pretend like we are rational. It's, I, th- I think if you can aim to be reasonable, that's the best we can do. And in the book, I use the example of fevers, which if you get a fever, it's a very rational thing. That's your body trying to fight off an illness, a bacteria or a virus. You're try- a fever is great, but they hurt. They're not any fun. So everybody who gets a fever including doctors, you know, with their patients are like, here's some Tylenol, get rid of that fever as quickly as we can. Even if a fever is rational, you should want it to fight the illness. It's not reasonable because it hurts. (laughs) It's miserable. So get rid of it. I think there's so many financial equivalents of that, of like doing X would be rational, but uh, that just doesn't fit my personality. I I don't sleep very well at night if I were to do that. So I'm just going to try to do the equivalent of taking Tylenol to get rid of my fever. Even if it's not rational, it's reasonable. And I, I, I make sure to, I, you know, if I called the, the chapter, don't be rational, that would be wrong. <laughs> I say you, you should be reasonable because a lot of people will make decisions that are not even reasonable. Right, They've right. gone past reason yeah. and they're, they're making unreasonable decisions. So being reasonable means you're still, you're, you're staying within the ballpark of rational, right. but it's okay to venture out a little bit. One example of this, I saw somebody on Twitter just yesterday criticizing people for this. And I always shake my head. There is a very well-known home bias in investing where U.S. investors by and large, just own U.S. stocks. German investors just own German stocks. Japan investors, just Japanese stocks. By and large, that's directionally true. And it's not rational at all. Nobody should pretend that the best stocks that you should own are the ones that are located closest to your house. Right. But it's a very reasonable thing to do mm-hmm. because it helps people take the leap of faith of being like, if I'm going to invest my life savings in the stock market, at least make them companies that I'm familiar with. Sure. And I'm familiar with Apple and Google and Amazon. I'm not familiar with all the Japanese trading houses or the Japanese consumer companies. I'm, when I go down the list, I'm like, I've never heard of these companies. And so it's not rational, but it's very reasonable to have a home bias. And I think there are just so many examples of things like that. Sure. Like, I mean, pay, paying off your mortgage right now is a hot one we're going through. Because yeah. Well, I mean, right now it might make a little more safe if, right. you, if you, if you got a mortgage at 7% or whatever sure. people yeah. got recently, but if you got a mortgage in 2020 uh, or you know, and you were getting, some people were in the twos, yeah. 2.8%. Yeah. It was probably the worst financial decision you could have ever made in your life to pay that off. I think for a lot of people, it was a very reasonable decision. And I wrote about my wife and I doing this in 2017, which is when we did it. Our mortgage rate was three and a half percent, 3%. It was 3%. Put that in an Excel sheet. Yeah, it was. <laughs> and I, 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 I write in the book, I said, paying it off was the worst financial decision we've ever made but the best money decision we've ever made because no other decision we've ever made with money made us smile, 
made us realize that our life is in our control, mm-hmm. made us realize that nobody can take this house from our kids. No recession is going to cause a banker to knock at my door and say, hand the keys back. It's to this day, six years later, it's, I've never done something with money, at least at, at a large scale yeah. that gave me as much pleasure as doing that. Even if it was the worst financial decision we ever made. That's a great example. Great example. So as, as you think, Morgan, about other you know, behavioral biases, uh, misconceptions that people have, how can investors use that knowledge that they exist? We all know they're out there, but how can they learn from them and avoid some of the mistakes by being reasonable, reasonable not necessarily rational? I always use the example of Daniel Kahneman, who is a psychologist who is the godfather of a lot yes. of what we're talking about. Yep. He won the Nobel Prize in, in economics for his work in behavioral finance. And he was interviewed, uh, I don't know, five or 10 years ago. And somebody said, hey, you've been studying these points for 60 years. Has this knowledge that you've accumulated and discovered, has it made you less biased? And without hesitation, he said, no, no. He said he has as many flaws as anybody else. And he makes as many bad decisions as, as anybody else. If Daniel Kahneman can't use this knowledge to make better decisions, there's no hope for anybody, for any of us. <laughs> and I think that's kind of where reasonable versus rational comes to. It's like, I think step one is admitting that you are biased and I am biased and everybody is biased. I am irrational. I am emotional. I, everybody is. I think if you pretend that you are not, that's the biggest behavioral flaw that you have is not admitting that you're a flawed person. And so once you admit that you have as many biases as anybody else, then I think it just gives you a little bit more humility when you make these, these decisions. And it gives you permission to try to make financial decisions that will help you sleep better at night and will keep you happy rather than pretending like this is a calculus test and we're just trying to find the quote unquote right answer that doesn't exist. It's like, this is a messy thing. And if I can just try to go out of my way to understand who I am and what my risk tolerance is and what, how I want to use money to give myself and my family a better life, that's the best that I can do. But let's not try to get too precise about this because I'm as flawed as anybody else. What role do you think financial advisors, because I know you talk to financial advisors all over the country, what role can they play in helping their clients kind of avoid some of those mistakes? I think it's really evolved over the last just 20 years or so. Because if you go back to even the mid or late 1990s, if you were a dentist or a plumber and you wanted to buy some mutual funds, you had to go to a financial advisor and use them as a gatekeeper. Because the whole do-it-yourself platform didn't exist and the information that you needed didn't exist. If you, if you had to ask, hey, what's the best fund for me to buy? There was no information that you could just go look that up yourself or, or try to educate yourself. Right. You had, the financial advisors were gatekeepers. That's not the case anymore. And now a mildly competent person can do enough research to figure out this is how funds work. This is how diversification works. But I always make the point that that does, has not diminished the value of a financial advisor at all. I think financial advisors are probably more valuable than they have ever been. Mm. Because back when they were gatekeepers, it was just, hey, as long as you're a financial advisor and like you have the information that the client doesn't, like you can add value. But now the value of a financial advisor is to almost be like a financial therapist to the customer. And that is, I think, way more valuable than, it, than being a gatekeeper to information was. And so if as a financial advisor, you can help the client understand their own goals, their own emotions, their own biases, their own flaws. And I think what's really important is keeping them in the game when things are tough, either tough at the macro level, like during a recession and a bear market or the micro level, like, oh, you're going through a job loss, you're going through a divorce, whatever it might be. If you can keep people in the game, you will have, you have earned your fee 10 times over for the rest of your life. I always made the point that in March of 2020, when the world was melting down from the early days of COVID, 
and the stock market fell 40%, whatever it was. If you as a financial advisor kept your clients invested in March of 2020, you earned your fee for the next 20 years. Because investors who panicked, and a lot of them did, that's why stocks were falling as people were panicking, that will leave a scar in your portfolio that you will never recover from. You will never recover from that. And so I think, you know, there's the old quip about pilots that a pilot's job is hours and hours of boredom punctuated by moments of sheer terror. And I think a financial advisor too will earn most of their fee once a decade in terms of, in terms of the value that totally they provide. Agree That's a great that. point. I yeah. totally agree. I think it's similar for a doctor as well. If you have a primary care doctor, they might earn their keep and help you and save your life once in your entire lifetime when they find catch. a lump on your yep. chest, whatever it yep, might be, right. catch something. Yep. So there are a lot of professions where you are adding value every single day. Whereas I think a financial advisor is actually pretty rare, but when they add value, like boy, do they add value. I totally agree. I, I've always joked with people that anyone could have done my job in 2019 when the market just went up half a percent like yeah. every day. Yeah. It was really easy. Yeah. 2020 was a whole different story. So I totally agree. Uh, Morgan, you used a term there, uh, keep them in the game. One of my favorite concepts that you've introduced is playing your own game. Mm-hmm. And I think you've written or talked about how your own views about what games people should be playing have evolved over time. You've recognized that some people are just playing a different game and there could be good reasons for that. But tell us more about, about that concept. I think a lot of it, one of the things I've changed my mind about in the last couple of years, maybe in the last decade, is I used to think that there was one right way to invest, one right way to spend your money. There was one right answer to finance. And if you were doing it differently than I was, then it was clear that you were doing it wrong. And I think a lot of finance is taught like there is one right answer because in physics, there's one, one right answer and math, there's one right answer. But I just think in finance, everyone was just trying to use money as a tool for their own individual personality. And people understand that people have different tastes in music and food. But when you say that people have a different taste in money or a different taste in investing, people kind of get angry about it because it's easy to view somebody doing something differently than you are as a slight against the decision that you've made. So once you come to terms with the fact that people have totally different risk tolerances, totally different social aspirations, and therefore there is no world in which you and I, even as the same age, will have the same desires, the same goals, the same risk tolerances, everybody's different, but it's so rarely acknowledged. Like if you watch CNBC, bless them, they will say, you know, they'll have a guest that says, you should buy Microsoft before earnings. And you're like, who are you talking to? Are you talking to a 17-year-old day trader? Are you talking to a 90-year-old widow? Let's not pretend that those people have the same goals, the same risk tolerances. So I think it's really important to identify what game you're playing and say, this is what I'm trying to do with my money. And because I am therefore acknowledging that a lot of other people are doing something different, I'm not going to pay any attention to the information that they're providing, to the commentary that they're putting out, to the decisions that they're making, they're playing their game. I'm playing my own game. I think it's, it's a really critical part of money. I mean, once you go out of your way to define your game, then all of a sudden it becomes clear, like what information is pertinent to you and who you should talk to and who you should, what you should not pay attention to and who you should not be talking to. Exactly. I I love your definition. I don't know if you have it on on the top of your head of what game you're playing though. Do you, do you recall what you said? Not verbatim, but it's like, I'm a, I'm a passive investor. I dollar cost average into index funds. And I'm confident that over the next 50 years, people will get more productive. The economy will become more productive and the profits from that will accrue to me as a shareholder. That's the game that I'm playing. And I could, I I could also define like a household financial game, but like as an investor, that's the game that I'm playing. And once I define that, then virtually all market commentary, 
I, I think it's interesting. I read a lot of it because I think it's yeah. neat, but it's not relevant to my game at all. Right. Gosh, that's an important concept, I think. So, um, um, something else you said, you know, over 50 years, you've written a lot about the importance of compounding over time and how important that is. And it's not about earning a return uh, at one particular point, but how long can you continue compounding that return? Talk, talk to us a little bit about that. Well, it's just so many investors want to answer the question, how can I earn higher returns? And it seems like who could possibly ever disagree with that? Of course you want to earn higher returns. That's the whole part of what investing is. But it's actually not the right question to ask. Compounding is returns to the power of time. That's the formula for compounding. And if you know math, the exponent does all of the heavy lifting. Like in exponential math, the exponent is where all the power comes from. So the question you actually want to answer as an investor is, what are the best returns that I can sustain for the longest period of time? That's what always does it. And to me, the, the, the secret in investing is that average returns sustained for an above average period of time, that's where the wealth is actually held. Now, if you can earn above average returns for an above average period sure. of time, then you're Warren Buffett. Right. But for most people, average returns, if you can earn index fund returns for 50 years and actually keep it going for 50 years, you will end up in the top like 2% of all investors. And that to me, as someone who again was at the 30,000 foot, I'm not smart enough to figure everything <laughs> else out. That was like, okay, well, that's, that's what I want. If I can just be an index fund investor for 50 years and beat 98% of my peers, or maybe even more, that's the, like, of course, that's what I should aim for. So then all of my focus and attention and bandwidth is going towards endurance. I'm not focused on how can I earn higher returns. I'm focused on how can I keep these returns going for the longest period of time, make sure that I'm never forced either financially or psychologically to sell these stocks that I own. Mm -hmm. And 2008 and March of 2020, I'm just going to keep going, keep going. I'm going to keep buying, keep buying. My friend Nick Majuli wrote a book last year called Just Keep Buying. Good book. Great book. Yeah. Nick's such a good guy too. And the title says it all. Like, what is the secret to investing? It's just keep buying and hold on for dear life for as long as you possibly can. And I think historically, that's where the big returns have been earned. It's not the geniuses who can pick the right stocks. It's the people who just hold on for as long as they can. I think it's an interesting thought when you think about, okay, I want to invest, let's say in index funds for a very long time. That means I'm optimistic in the long run. But to be able to continue investing over the short run, you've talked about this some too, you have to be at least a little bit pessimistic. You have to be protect a little bit so that you don't get forced out of the market in some of the tail events that you've written about as well, because those end up being things that are incredibly meaningful. I had a conversation with a fund manager a year or two ago, and he asked me how I invest. And I kind of said, what well, I just said, oh, like I'm a buy and hold investor. He said, God, you know, you're holding a lot of risk going into earnings season next week. Does that buy? And I'm going to be like, what? what? But this again is like, we're playing different games. He was a trader. And to him, the idea of owning stocks on a Friday when earnings were being announced on Monday was like suicide to him. So it's just totally different. But for me, my, my whole view of endurance was I, I want to be able to endure everything, not just earning announcements, but I want to be able to endure 9-11. And right. I want to be able to endure COVID. I want to endure Lehman Brothers going under and all of the other big risks that are going to yeah. occur over the next 50 years. And there's going to be dozens of them some of which are going to make, you know, be bigger than the, what we've dealt with so far. And every single decade has a calamity. This decade so far, it's been COVID. Before that, it was Lehman Brothers. Before that, it was 9-11, World War II, Pearl Harbor. Like every decade has some sort of calamity. And so if I want to be invested for the next 50 years, I know with almost yep. certainty that there's going to be, you know, five to 10 disasters that are going to look really, really bad. That's my baseline assumption. That's not maybe. That's like, of course it's going to happen. Right. And so once you have that, it's like you just, it opens up your mind 
to just mm-hmm. being able to hold on the, the the rodeo horse a little tighter and just being like, I know this is going to happen. I just need to figure out the mindset and the portfolio allocation that lets me endure rather than assume that I can avoid volatility. Well, one of the things you've written is uh, related to this is every past market crash looks like an opportunity but every future market crash looks like a risk. And you kind of touch on a little bit with, with talking about CNBC, but why is pessimism so attractive? And how can investors avoid some of the pitfalls that being overly yeah. pessimistic brings? Kahneman brought up this point. It's, it's a pretty obvious point. I'm sure he didn't come up with this, but it's like, if you look at, at evolution, people have to be more pessimistic than optimistic to survive. Like if, if there's a rustle in the bushes, you have to be scared and jump because it might be an alligator that's going to kill you. Like people should be very pessimistic because in order to, to get the reward, you have to first survive. Yeah. So people are always going to be primed towards pessimism more than they are optimism. We're just wired to try to stay alive. And I also think that particularly in finance, I write in the book that a, a pessimist sounds like somebody trying to help you. Like, hey, there's a warning down like here, like I'm trying to help you. And an optimist sounds like a salesman. Like, hey, I got a stock that can double. You want to be interested in that? <laughs> Most people's BS radar goes off when they hear that for good reason. And when people he- read a news headline about, you know, giant recession coming that might cost you your job and your life savings, people, of course, they're going to read that with a lot of, a lot of attention. So we're always going to be more primed towards pessimism than optimism. I'm like that too. Everybody is like that. The irony is that over the long term, you want to be an optimist, of course, and right. everything points to that. In the last hundred years, we've dealt with the Great Depression and World War II and the inflation of the 70s and Vietnam and COVID and 9-11. And, and the quality of life for the average typical American is up like tenfold in right. real terms. <laughs> and so you want to be an optimist, even if you look at history and it's just one constant chain of disaster after one or another. And so I think most people view optimism and pessimism as black or white. You're either an optimist or you're a pessimist. Right. And I've often viewed it as like, you got to learn how to get both of those to coexist. And be an be optimistic with your investments, but pessimistic with your savings. Right. That's how I've I've framed it before. Is like you oh, want to yeah. save like a pessimist and invest like an optimist. Save your money with the idea that the next twelve months, the next five years, the next ten years are going to be a constant chain of setback and disappointment. Right. But invest your money with the idea that if you can hold on and endure all those, the rewards are going to be astronomical. Another uh, concept you've introduced, that I think, helps frame something that can be challenging for people is the idea of volatility as a fee. Maybe tell us how you how you came up with that and how that applies to investing. I just I was viewed it as whenever there's volatility, so many investors and clients look for somebody to blame. And they say, whose fault was this? It's usually the financial advisor or the portfolio or the chairman of the Fed or the president. It's usually their fault that they <laughs> that gets the finger pointed at them. Who's to blame for my portfolio falling 20%? And I always viewed it as, of course, your portfolio is going to fall 20%. That's the cost of doing well over time. Do you people expect that you're going to earn 8% annual returns and have to give nothing in return? That you're just going to get those returns? Just here's millions of dollars <laughs> just for nothing? Everything good in life has a price, of course. Mm-hmm. And the price of investing is putting up with and dealing with a constant chain of volatility and uncertainty. And so when you deal with volatility, nine times out of 10, it doesn't signal that you did something wrong, that you made a mistake. Nobody should be in trouble. It's just you're paying the dues that are necessary to earn high returns over time. And if you want no volatility, you can go in bank accounts and CDs. And of course, you're going to get the measly returns from those that you deserve. So once you view volatility as it's not a fine, it doesn't mean you did something wrong. It's a cost of admission. Then I think it just makes putting up with volatility a little bit more palatable. When the market does fall 20%, it's not fun. You know, it's not like, oh, this is awesome. But you're like, okay, I know what's going on here. I'm just, I'm just paying the bills. And this is a worthwhile bill to pay 
because I know the rewards are going to be great in the long run. I think that's a very healthy way to think about volatility. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, sure. Tyler, maybe we turn it toward uh, looking ahead in the future. Yeah, let's spend, as we kind of come to a closer, I, I looked up and we're already at 40 minutes, so this has been great, but let's look to the future. What are you seeing? You are clearly talking to a ton of people. You're reading a ton of content. What, in your opinion, where's our industry going? Whether it's the finance industry just as a whole, whether it's the advisor side of things? Like, where do you see some of the headwinds or tailwinds in the next 10 years in, in the industry? I think the trend that I brought up earlier of financial advisors becoming more, more like a financial therapist. That doesn't mean they don't have technical expertise and they can give, but it turns it into a much more relationship-driven business where the relationship between client and advisor is like, I really know you and I trust you. Yeah. And I think for advisors that do a good job, that's the best news you could ever possibly hear because then you have client loyalty, people stick around and it's great news for clients as well that your advisor, they are paid to understand your risk, not just to sell you a mutual fund like it was 30 years ago. They're paid to truly understand who you are and what you want out of life and you do everything they can to be by your side to get you there. So I think moving from a transactional relationship, which is what it had always been from the 1920s through about 15 years ago, it was a transactional relationship. And now it's a real relationship. Mm -hmm. I think that's that trend is still really powerful and going on. And a lot of that too was caused by fee compression in funds. You know, it used to be in mutual funds, fees were one and a half percent, two percent, and then in the indexing revolution just squashed everything. That too made it so a financial advisor 30 years ago could make a good living just selling mutual funds to their advisor. They got a great commission. Like everybody was happy. That's all I need. Like client, get out of here. I got my money. That's like, we're done here. (laughs) Go away. And now it's as an advisor, it's like, oh, if you want to make a business out of what you're doing, you need to add value through this relationship and really convince your client that like, I'm actually here for you to help you. So that is a great thing for clients as well. I think they, I think the relationship that a client can have with an advisor today is so much stronger than it was in any point in the past, unless you were a multi-billionaire and you got the absolute top tier level. Right. But now a, a dentist or a plumber or a school teacher can get a value out of a financial advisor today that only existed for the very wealthy before. And the reason is because the incentives have shifted from transactions towards relationships. I was talking to a friend uh, this morning who's a CIO of a large RAA, and he was, he was talking about robo-advisors. And 10 years ago when robo-advisors came out, it was supposed to be the death of financial advisors. Yeah. And of course, I think what you're saying is that personal relationship, understanding the client's risk tolerance, and all those things really can't be done in a robo advisor just purely through technology. But I also think this quarter, we've talked about this a lot, the AI revolution with chat GPT and everything clearly is going to change our industry and a lot of industries too. Yeah. How are you thinking about that, particularly as a writer as well, who, you know, I, I think I could type in, uh, write me something in the style of Morgan Housel and chat GPT would probably, it's, it's post stag- I gotta get, I gotta write more books before it's too late before I'm just <laughs> put, it pushed out, out here. Just try to get it out as quick as possible. No, I think it's, it's true. I think very, it's similar to medicine where did WebMD put doctors out of business? Well, of course not. And of course, doctors provide like a technical like operation. They actually do things for you. But most doctor's visits are actually people who just want somebody in a white coat with a diploma on their wall to look them in the eye and say, you're going to be okay. Right. And I think it's very similar to what a financial, that's what the people want to have a financial advisor. I also think that it's interesting that most doctors have their own doctor that they go to see. Mm. If you're a medical doctor, you have all of the expertise and knowledge to be your own doctor but you still go to your own primary care doctor. And the reason is because 
that other doctor doesn't have the emotional baggage that everybody else mm-hmm. has for themselves. And it's easy for yourself to be like, ah, oh, this lump on my neck, it's probably nothing because you don't want to admit you, you need somebody who is not in your shoes to look at you objectively. Yeah. And I think it's same for financial advisors as well. Absolutely. Every financial advisor that I know has, and sometimes it's informal, their own financial advisor that they go and talk to for their own money. Yeah. And it's not because that advisor has more information. It's just, you're getting, it's somebody who doesn't have the emotional baggage that you do. And I think that's also a great like highlight of the relationship between the lay client and advisor. Like this is not about technical expertise, so to speak. This is about looking at your financial situation without the emotional baggage that everybody, including myself, has when they think about their own household. I have a couple of friends who are CFPs that I bounce my own financial questions off of. And I consider myself a financially informed person. And every single time I talk to them, they will say, oh, you're, you're missing this. You're not thinking about this. Have you ever thought about that? And every time I'm like, oh no, I hadn't thought about that. Like, thank you for pointing this yeah. out. And I think a lot of that is because, well, A, they have more technical expertise than I do about things on estate planning and taxes. But B, it's because I'm emotional about my household finances as well. I got two young kids yeah. and I want to use my, and I'm the sole breadwinners. Everybody is emotional about their own household finances and you need somebody who is not to help you through that journey. Maybe just one last thing for me. One of your recent podcasts, by the way, I love the podcast. I'm Thank thrilled you. that you've started to do that, but you talked about uh, transferring wealth, how to think about your kids with respect to money. And, and one of our goals is to help families transfer generational wealth over time. But uh, I thought you had some great thoughts. Maybe just tell us generally how you think about money and your own kids, making sure that they, they come away as well as you can. I know that we can't instill values in other people uh, 100%, but how do you think about that with your own kids? Well, sure. The, the story that I told in, in the podcast that that was so mm-hmm. good, it was from Charlie Munger. And some one of his very wealthy friends said, Charlie, if I, I, th- I think it was, it was a billionaire friend and said, Charlie, if I, if I give billions of dollars to my kids in inheritance, is that going to ruin them? Is that going to sap their motivation and turn them into brats? And Charlie said, of course it will, <laughs> but you have to do it. Because if you don't, they will hate you. And I was like, that's, I've never seen a better summary yeah. of people struggle to transfer money to their kids than, than that. Right. And Warren Buffett has this quote where he says, leave your kids enough money so they can do anything, but not so much money that they can do nothing. Right. And like, it's a great quote. It's very, it's very witty, but it's also like, I think that level of wealth where your kids can do nothing is a lot lower than you think. Mm. And I, I don't know if there is any good answer for the question of how can you transfer money to your children without ruining them other than give them less. I think that's, I, nobody wants to hear that. And every consultant will have a, 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 a will have an answer for how you can, how you can do it. I've never seen it done appropriately, at least at a, at a broad level. Once in a while, you'll have people who are like kids who will inherit a lot of money, but they're just at their core, they're great, ambitious type A people yeah. and they're going to go out. But most of the time, that's not the case. And I don't know if you can fix it any other way than giving them less. But this is why the Munger story comes in of like, well, if you do that, they're going to hate you. Right. Maybe that's the curse of wealth. A lot of great <laughs> things come from wealth. Transferring it to your kids and dealing with generational wealth yeah. is not one of the great things. Especially when you provides. don't, you don't want to talk about it the entire time you're alive. And then all of a sudden it happens and you right. haven't talked about it. No so you, have, you haven't equipped them with this is why we have this wealth. This is why I built this wealth. Anyway, so that, because that there's no emotional tie to it. Yeah. They tie it all back together. They have no emotional tie to this wealth. So yeah. The one family that I think has done the best job in history at it, and it's an extreme example, but are the Rockefellers. Right. Yep. yep. They are the family that, you know, made their money 150 years ago, still have a lot of it, 
And by and large, from what I understand, the current generation of Rockefellers are good, hardworking people. Right. And if you compare that to the Vanderbilts and right. the Carnegies and whatnot. Because you talked about the Vanderbilts. Oh, the Vanderbilts are the most astounding <laughs> example of the wealth, literally the wealthiest family in history. That, you know, the, the Carnegies and the JP Morgans and the, and the Rockefellers gave most of their money away to charities. Vanderbilt, outside of Vanderbilt University, yeah. basically just gave his kids the equivalent, adjusted for inflation, of $400 billion. He just gave it to his kids. And, <laughs> and also, a lot of the Rockefellers are like this, of grooming the children to run the business right. and keep it going. Whereas the Vanderbilts, by and large, forbid that. They didn't want their kids working. They wanted their kids to be socialites. And so rather, it was almost like, I'm, I'm going to purposely not teach you how to run the business because your because, job yeah. is to throw parties. And it's a, so, it's a burden, as, as you Huge talked about in your, in your podcast. And some of the books are written about the Vanderbilt children. The best one is a book called Fortune's Children, where it profiles three generations of Vanderbilts. Every single one of them is miserable. Every single one of them is depressed. Every single one of them, you read their story and you're like, I would rather be poor right. than live this life. Yeah. Right. Because they were all completely deprived of an identity right. other than, what's, that's the irony. You, you would think being, having your last name be Vanderbilt is like the ultimate identity. The built-in identity. But they right. had no identity yeah. because they had, they, none of them had their own careers. A lot of them had the equivalent of like an arranged marriage because, I mean, not technically, but it was but, like, you have to marry another blue blood. Yeah. So these are your four options. <laughs> <laughs> like you can pick from one there's of only, these four There's people. only a few four <laughs> billion dollars. Yeah. Yeah. It's <laughs> really what it was. So you read it and you're like, this sounds terrible. And I, I've, I've written about this too. It's such a fascinating ending to the Vanderbilt story. The very first Vanderbilt heir to not inherit any money. Like the last, the first one when all the money was gone is Anderson, Anderson Cooper, Cooper. Yeah. of CNN. Anderson, <laughs> Ooh, no Cooper's, way. Mom, Anderson yeah. Cooper's mom was Gloria, Gloria Vanderbilt, yep. who was the last Vanderbilt to get a trust fund. And <laughs> what I think is so interesting is that Anderson Cooper is, from, at least from the outside appearance, yeah. the happiest and the most successful mm -hmm. Vanderbilt in 150 years. Wow. And he's talked about this where he doesn't, he thinks that's probably true and not a coincidence. Mm. And he said he was the first Vanderbilt in 150 years who had to work. And when you see that, it's like, oh God, that's amazing. How, how do you not read into that <laughs> and take something away about what money does to ambition? Absolutely. Well, that sure seems like a great place to, to wrap it up. Morgan, you've been very generous with your time. Thank you again for uh, joining us on charting the course and uh, coming to Oklahoma City to see us here. Yeah, we really, really appreciate it. So I hope you enjoyed the the dinner tonight that you're speaking at. I know we are thrilled to have you here in Oklahoma City. And uh, by all means, we'll do this again. Hopefully, hopefully have you back on. Write another book. I'm, I'm doing it. Thanks so much for having me. This has been fun. Thanks. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed today's conversation, don't forget to review and subscribe to your preferred podcast platform. Have a great week. All opinions expressed by the host and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Full Sail Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Full Sail may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.